Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host today. My name is Brian Hamilton, and I'm joined by Natasha Zaretsky. She's Associate Professor of History at Southern Illinois University, and her latest book is Radiation Nation, Three Mile Island and the Political Transformation of the 1970s, which came out just back in February from Columbia University Press. Natasha Zaretsky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so this book marks your debut as an environmental historian. Um, so I'm hoping you could introduce yourself to our audience by telling us a bit about both your path to becoming a scholar and your first book, No Direction Home. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about my prior work and what eventually led me to write Radiation Nation. I am a graduate of an American studies program at Brown University. That's where I got my PhD. And my first book, published in 2007, was based on my dissertation, and it was called No Direction Home, The American Family and the Fear of National Decline, 1968 to 1980. And my training really um, was as a cultural historian and a gender historian, and I still very much identify strongly uh, with those fields. No Direction Home was a book that looked at the place of family decline, how perceptions of family decline in the United States in the 1970s sort of figured in and helped structure larger debates about the decline of the nation in the 1970s. So each of those chapters looked at, um, the say, the Vietnam War, the OPEC oil embargo, um, debates about lagging productivity in the 1970s. And each chapter sort of looked at how the family, anxieties about the decline of the family, and in particular, anxieties about the decline of paternal authority and fatherly authority within the family sort of structured Uh, those national debates about a perceived crisis in foreign policy or economic policy. So that was my very first book project. Thanks. Uh, So how did you decide to write your second book about Three Mile Island? Yeah, so the Three Mile Island project actually emerged somewhat organically out of the first book. The first book is really interested in U.S. nationalism in the 1970s. But um, the first book, in retrospect, was pretty ambitious and broad in its scope. So one question I had coming out of that first book was, what does this story look like if you sort of scale down? And rather than focusing on, say, national discourse or broader political discourse, what happens if you want to focus on um, one place, one local community? So that was one question that was animating me. Um, The second thing that drove me sort of in the direction of Three Mile Island was actually, I discovered the photograph, an Associated Press photograph that now graces the cover of the book, which is an image from the time of the accident that shows a mother and child um, walking uh, in the foreground. And in the background, you can see the cooling towers of Three Mile Island. And I thought this was a very evocative photographic image. And as a gender historian, um, I had this thought, you know, I sort of asked myself if gender and the family and motherhood had played perhaps an outsized, um, underappreciated role in the Three Mile Accident. And it was sort of a very similar line of inquiry to what I had brought to my, you know, my first book. This is sort of what I do as I try to uncover dynamics of gender politics in places that... um, might be surprising or somewhat counterintuitive. And the final thing is that I had become more interested in environmental politics um, and ecology and ecological politics just in my own kind of political life over the last decade or so. And so I was interested in looking at how environmental politics intersected with some of the other questions about U.S. nationalism and cultural history and gender history that I had explored in my prior work. 
Yeah, well, it's it's really a tremendous book. Uh, it might be scaled down from the first book, but it's still very, very ambitious. Um, Thank you. It is so, so rich, and we, we we will stand no chance of getting to a lot of a lot of its riches um, in this hour. But I think we could really do a five part special on it. I think it would actually be a great. I think it would be a really great, uh, actually, an exciting podcast series. I don't know if that's a compliment. It's a very 2018 compliment, but <laughs> I, there's not, I don't think podcast option rights are very lucrative. But um, but let's let's just be, let's let's just begin at the beginning. Um, your okay. first chapter. Your first chapter is essentially a 30-year prehistory of Three Mile Island, setting the cultural right. scene, and it does a lot of things in setting that scene. Um, and in some ways, you begin with kind of a paradox that where after World War II, the nation had just witnessed kind of the horror of atomic weapons, um, yet the nation also goes along with this massive construction boom in nuclear reactors all around the country. So right. how, how was it that the federal government and utility companies successfully pitched Americans on atomic energy? Right. So in the first chapter of the book, I'm really trying to provide a prehistory of nuclear power and the rise of atomic energy in the United States in order to sort of lay the groundwork for the discussion of the accident that comes later. And as you say, there's a paradox in the post-war period because, of course, um, the end of World War II is marked by the birth of the atomic age and the kind of global witnessing of the uh, unparalleled power of nuclear weapons and, and the extraordinary violence that can be unleashed by them. But um, by the late 1940s and 1950s, there's a turn to uh, atomic power in the United States and the rise of civilian atomic power. And what I argue in my book is that both the federal government and promoters of nuclear, uh, the nuclear industry sort of dealt with this paradox by drawing a very, very sharp line of demarcation between atomic weapons and atomic power plants. And in the book, I developed this concept of what I call a culture of dissociation. Dissociation is a psychological term that's used uh, within the field of psychology to describe the ways in which uh, patients individuals sort of split off traumatic events from uh, other life events and it sort of cordons sort of cordons those traumas off um, and and sequesters them kind of unconsciously and I argue that something similar happened in the United States during the 1940s and the 1950s where the horrors of atomic weaponry were sort of uh, compartmentalized split off in such a way that allowed for the rise of atomic uh, civilian uh, nuclear power. And so in the post-war period, you actually see uh, civilian nuclear power being heralded and celebrated as containing the remedy for all sorts of ills, ranging from curing cancer to addressing um, uh, environmental problems to all kinds of technological innovations to planetary engineering. It's almost seen as this kind of gift um, that within the hands of the United States can be bequeathed to other nations throughout the world. It's really sort of celebrated. In the United States as well, it's also associated with the domestic sphere of the home. Um, I argue that in the book, there's a very close alignment between nuclear power and the middle class household, because of course, nuclear power is associated most commonly with electricity generation, as opposed to say, um, petroleum, which we associate with cars and mobility across space. Nuclear power has a very long history of being aligned with the home. Um, so I talk about that in the book as well. Yeah, and as you write, this this culture of dissociation it's it's a you know, complicated and impressive ideological project, but it was also always fragile. And so, exactly. what, yeah, what what eventually shatters its hold on Americans? Well, the culture of dissociation is always really unstable, and part of the reason for that is that at the same time that you have the spread of atomic uh, civilian power in the United States, you have the spread of nuclear power plants, you also have growing anxiety about the threats posed by radiation. Um, radiation in the early 20th century was actually associated with health and healing. It was seen, radium itself actually was um, seen as an elixir with healing properties, um, but by uh, the late 19th 1940s and 1950s, especially, there's growing. There are growing revelations about the ways in which high levels of radiation exposure, in particular, can jeopardize uh, health and poses a, a health threat. So you have the growing uh, call for a ban on nuclear weapons testing in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, that revolves uh, largely around that hazards of uh, radioactive exposure and the risks associated with high levels of radiation. 
radiation exposure. By the 1970s, that gets ratcheted up, ratcheted up even further in some ways. The, uh, the, the test ban treaty of, of uh, 1963 kind of... Um, means that there's less concern about, about um, radioactive exposure from nuclear testing. However, by the 1970s, you have, con- you have a kind of rerouting of concerns and fears about radiation um, that are rechanneled into worry about nuclear power plants and the hazards posed by nuclear power plants to people living near nuclear reactors. So by the 1970s, this culture of dissociation is really kind of coming apart as you have a highly mobilized group of anti-nuclear reactor. You know, you have an anti-nuclear movement in the United States that's highly mobilized. And you also have radiation sufferers and their families becoming increasingly mobilized in the 1970s and sort of um, initiating their own kind of mobilization that's related to anti-nuclear organizing, but isn't exactly the same as as it for reasons I discuss at more length in the book. Yeah. And, and when you started to look at these this early anti-reactor activism and, and the test ban opponents, you find that the archives are full of bodies everywhere. There's yeah. bodies everywhere in the rhetoric and the imagery. Um, so what kind of bodies were especially important to anti-nuclear messaging and what do they come to symbolize? So again, I Coming at this as a, as a gender historian, I was extremely interested. You know, I, I did not have a, a large background in environmental studies or environmental science or the history of public health. But one of the things that becomes very clear as you learn about the debates about radiation, growing revelations about the health risks posed by radiation exposure, is how much these focus on particular bodies, the bodies of pregnant women, uh, the bodies of young children, the bodies of um, babies, and even the bodies of fetuses. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that actually it's within debates about radiation and nuclear power and atomic weapons that you first have the construction of the unborn as a a body that is vulnerable to environmental injury. So one of the the arguments... It wasn't just the fetus, was it? The unborn was a more capacious category? Exactly. So by the term unborn, I use the term in a dual sense in the book. I, ta- I, I use it obviously in reference to already uh, developing the already developing fetus. But in addition, I use the unborn to talk about the fetus that has, has yet to be conceived. So the unborn becomes a, a symbol of future injury or future harm that might, um, harms that might not appear right away, but that can appear um, in successive generations, in future generations. So it was really the bodies of young children, the bodies of pregnant women, and the, bo- the bodies of the unborn in that dual sense that take on a very freighted symbolic role in debate about uh, radiation exposure and in the debates about, you know, in the fight for a, a, a test ban. Yeah. And when you come, you carry that through the whole book and we'll come back to that. Um, so in chapter two, you get to the accident itself and it's immediate. Right. Aftermath. Um, and before we discuss the many meanings it took on, could you just take us through some of the specifics of it? What, what happened at Three Mile Island in the spring of 1979? Sure. So what happened at Three Mile Island in the spring of 1979 was what industry what nuclear engineers and industry people call a loss of coolant accident or a LOCA, um, a valve that was um, supposed to uh, remain closed was opened. And it was due to a combination of sort of design flaws built into the reactor, mechanical malfunction and human error. And that um, the leaving of that valve open allowed large amounts of water to escape from the containment building of the reactor. And what happened as a consequence of that was that the reactor overheated um, and it became very hot. Radiation leaked um, into the surrounding air um, of into the the environment surrounding the plant. Um, and in addition, um, th- there was wastewater that was dumped into the Susquehanna River Valley at the same time that contained a small amount of radioactive isotopes. So this was the basic uh, kind of in the broadest outlines. I mean, there's an entire book has been written about the accident itself and all the mechanics mm-hmm. of it. But this was sort of in the broadest outlines what happened, a loss of coolant that caused the 
reactor to overheat. And the whole crisis itself really lasted over a week. I think it was about eight days before um, it was brought under control. And the two main risks, the, the two largest risks were, of course, a meltdown, commonly known at the time as the China syndrome, for reasons we can talk about in a, in a couple <laughs> minutes. Um, but there was also the risk of an explosion, actually, because there was a kind of hydrogen bubble at one point that was growing um, at the top of the of the containment building that sent um, sent nuclear engineers and members of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission sort of scrambling around trying to figure out if there might actually be an explosion in the plant, which was something that industry prom- promoters had repeatedly assured the public could never happen. So. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about the uh, the China syndrome. It's it's one of these you know too good to be true historical moments where right. where this movie, this Hollywood movie, the China syndrome with Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon and Michael Douglas had come out just twelve days before, um, and uh, and it has you know this cataclysmic um, um, kind of morality tale about um, about a about a meltdown and. And uh, I had always, you know, when I was, I heard this as undergraduate in the lecture, and I've seen it as, you know, being lectured on in my graduate career. And I always assumed that, like, of course, this ratcheted up the fear that local residents had of when they got the news of Three Mile Island. Um, sure. But what, what you pay particular attention to here is that the folks at the utility company, Met Ed, were thinking a lot about the film <laughs> when it starts yeah. to happen. Can you, can you say a little about that? Sure. Yeah, it's so funny because over the years that I've been working on this book, when I say I'm working on Three Mile Island, people are originally like, do you write about the China syndrome? You know, that's the sort of, <laughs> there's a lot of confusion um, in kind of people's collective memory about the line huh. between uh, the event itself and the film, which I think is extremely interesting. And just, it's really uncanny because there's actually a line of dialogue in the film that, that mentions, you know, that an accident at, in, at the plant, which is set in California would wipe out an area the size of Pennsylvania. And it's just by sheer happenstance that (laughs) it's just really strange that you have this, but yeah, what I found in the course of looking at depositions and, uh, the papers was that the utility company executives themselves were actually extremely aware of the depiction of the nuclear industry in the film, which was overwhelmingly negative. Actually, the uh, utility company owners at, uh, of the plant in Ventura, California, that is that are, that is the subject of the China Syndrome film. I mean, they are portrayed as totally villainous, deceptive, underhanded, willing to put the population at risk in order to protect their own profits. Um, you know, it's a very sort of uh, indicting picture of the nuclear industry, not surprisingly. Um, mm-hmm. And it after the accident at Three Mile Island, you have these utility company executives saying, you know, they were very aware of the negative depiction uh, of the uh of the industry as portrayed in that film. And we're really struggling to, to try to figure out how to uh, present themselves in way, in a way that, that would uh, not align them with that depiction to sort of appear as transparent as possible. But of course, I mean, they noted the irony as well, that the more they were trying to sort of calibrate their message and pitch the accident in a particular way um, in order to avoid some accusations of being corrupt or deceptive, you know, the more, they sort of looked like the utility company executives in the China syndrome. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a really interesting um, element of, of this story and an interesting kind of um, moment where you see this kind of collision between popular culture and an actual uh, accident and, and media event. Yeah. And, and they were really right to worry because there was this widespread criticism locally of the right. utility company's response. Yeah. Right they were villainized right away. Um, right. And one of the immediately striking things about this um, response was the visibility of women and maternal imagery and rhetoric in it. Um, and you have a lot to say about this. And But one of your first claims is that it's evidence of what you call the displacement of class by gender in the 1970s. What do you mean by that? Right. So as Three Mile Island, the accident emerged as one of the most widely covered uh, news stories of the year, you had journalists descending on the area very, uh, very quickly. And, um, okay. Could you, you know, say a bit about that? Because they also have to be careful because they become victims, right? They, or they become you know, subjects of this as well, right? Right, right. Yeah. So um, the, the, I discovered in the course of my research that the journalists themselves were actually really worried about radiation exposure. Um, some news outlets rotated journalists in and out of the area to try to make sure that no single journalist uh, 
uh, absorbed too much radiation. They wore dosimeters on their uh, lapels, some of them, mm. or, and trackers to try to themselves monitor radiation as they were covering the story. Um, there were accounts of journalists who had agreed to go to Vietnam during the Vietnam War who refused to go to Three Mile Island because they were so worried about the possibilities of radiation exposure. But, you know, the thing that's interesting about Three Mile Island, and this is something that I talk a lot about in the book, is, you know, how are you going to represent it visually? Because, um, you know, what, how many pictures of the cooling towers can you take? You know, like, there's no actual visual uh, there's no way to visually capture at that point anyway um, what's going on inside the containment building. There's a, a kind of fortress around the containment building. So one of the things I argue in the book is that the media kind of seized on images of mothers and children and babies um, as the primary victims of the accident. Um, and this was partly because um, those were the people who were um, uh evacuating in the largest numbers. Um, they left the five, especially within the five mile uh, ring radius surrounding the plant, the, it was women and children who were most likely to leave. So of course, journalists and photojournalists took pictures, uh, copious pictures of people leaving the area. But I think what's interesting about this and what is still worth asking is, and, and worth noting is that in fact, um, you know, on the one hand, you can say like, okay, that makes sense because of what was known at the time about radiation as a public health threat and the ways in which women and children are more vulnerable to radiation exposure. But if we're really being honest, you know, the people who were the most vulnerable to high level radiation exposure during the duration of the accident were the the people, largely men actually, who worked inside the plant and who were trying to bring radiation levels down. So there's a question that one could ask, like, why is an accident um, that could have been in an earlier period uh, really been framed in terms of workplace hazards, uh, the risks being incurred by workers in nuclear power plants. Why, instead of it's being framed that way, is it being framed in terms of uh, gender and the family? And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that and I, in here, I'm borrowing most directly from a historian named Jefferson Cowley, who wrote um, a wonderful book about the 1970s called Staying Alive, the 1970s mm -hmm. and, and uh, Last Days of the American Working Class. And in that book, he's arguing that class, uh, the kind of um, uh, centrality of the industrial working class that you see in politics between the 1930s and the late 1960s and early 1970s is really look, he looks at how it's falling away and sort of dissolving as a category. And one of the things that I argue in the book, sort of drawing very heavily on this idea, is that there's a kind of erasure of the significance of the accident as, um, uh, a, a sort of index of workplace hazards, the kind of hazards that are placed, uh, uh, the hazards that are faced by uh, workers in nuclear facilities. And instead, it, it comes to focus on uh, women and children, largely because of this question about representation and media representation and how you're going to represent an accident that you can't actually see. So. Yeah, and you say, and, and the activists themselves will deploy the same images and, and the same kinds of arguments, and um, and you see that as, as an artifact of of second wave feminism, um, and that's not the only '60s social movement that you see shaping the response of local residents to the accident. What, what other legacies of the '60s are out there? Right. So one of the most interesting things about the accident, I mean, why part of why I became interested in it was I am interested more broadly in the history of conservative politics in the 1970s, what historians call the rise of conservatism or the conservative ascendancy, how we get to a point um, by 1980 that you have, you know, the basically the displacement of uh, liberal hegemony for conservative hegemony. And this was a largely conservative community. Um, many of the residents were white, uh, uh, Christian 
rural people who had long sort of prided themselves on having um, a very patriotic or positive relationship with the government. These were not people who saw themselves as protesters. And it was really um, after the accident that many of them became mobilized for the first time in their lives. And as we've already sort of indicated, it was largely women and mothers of young children who became especially activated after the accident um, and determined to keep the the plant uh, closed um, indefinitely, to shutter the plant permanently. And they engaged in all kinds of activism um, in order to do that. And I think, again, part of the reason for this was that the growing consensus, there was a huge debate among scientists, and there still is, I think, um, about uh, what constitutes uh, constitutes a permissible dose of radiation. That is, it's clear that high level exposures to radiation are dangerous, but what about low level exposure? What about low level radiation? But one thing that biologists and geneticists and radiologists all agreed upon was that it was, again, babies, the unborn and pregnant women who were most vulnerable to radiation and that radiation was most harmful if exposures occurred, you know, in younger lives. So I think this was the a big part of the reason why women became so activated. And in the book, I argue, you know, these were largely conservative white Christian women. But what's interesting is that they're borrowing from all kinds of different social movements. They're borrowing from the black and women's health movements. They're borrowing from feminism, certainly in terms of saying, you know, we, um, we uh, are asserting a place for ourselves in this debate about the the future of nuclear power. They're borrowing from the ecology movement and some of the most basic elemental insights from the ecology and environmental movements in terms of, you know, ideas that water and air and and soil can become uh, contaminated. And they're also borrowing in uh, from the uh, pro life movement of the era in ways that I can talk about. Um, yeah, yeah. In a few minutes. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, they're, they're, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I just think, and this is one of the really animating riddles of the book, um, is that we have these, you know, patriotic, mostly rural, pretty conservative, mostly Republican residents. Um, they experience this right. terrible shock. They respond to it in a pretty leftist way. Um, and yet right. they come out of it still mostly Republicans and if anything, more conservative. Um, so how do you right. explain that? You know, what is this, how does this change the way we should think about the seventies and the rise of the right? Yeah, well, so this was one of the biggest paradoxes about this book. And, you know, for many years, I struggled with this because as a historian, I wanted to be able to make an argument about how, um, you know, the accident had facilitated this huge transformation. And I wanted to be able to go and look at electoral data and look at how these um, act, these local people had had pivoted or swung from right to left or from red to blue or whatever, not that those are the same things, but I wanted to try to capture some sort of shift in their politics. And I did not find that. And um, for a long time, I sort of struggled with that and thought, well, maybe there's really no story here. Mm. Uh, Maybe I don't have an argument. And then at a certain point, I realized like that's, this is actually what's really interesting is that you had this conservative community uh, that did undergo this, you know, I think it's fair to call it a trauma. Um, they were the site of the worst commercial nuclear reactor accident um, up until that time in the United States. And they, um, you know, it, and it does, as you say, it does lead them to start uh, questioning certain basic assumptions about the industry and what it means for private utility companies to have uh, control over a technology that can be so potentially damaging to the like life chances and health of all the people living nearby. And yet in the end, they become, you know, it, they, the accident actually, um, ends up bolstering their conservatism rather than undermining it. And so the argument I make in the book, which is, I think, different from how a lot of scholars have interpreted the conservatism of this period, is that one of the things you can see about Three Mile Island is is how these conservatives are actually drawing on all of these core insights from the social movements of the left and the social upheavals of the left from ecology, from feminism, and especially from the anti-war movement that, of course, had uh, 
um, really brought home this idea that the official story could not be trusted, that the government could not necessarily be trusted to tell the truth. So these local activists are taking all of those insights. And rather than it actually moving the dial for them in terms of embracing a leftist politics or moving farther to the left, they kind of repurpose them and fold them into their own kind of conservative worldview. So rather than it upending their conservatism in the book, I argue that they kind of their conservatism undergoes a, a what I call a mutation, borrowing from the language of maybe <laughs> radiation, that they are kind of incorporating and folding all of these insights into their conservative politics. And I think this is pretty different from how a lot of historians typically depict the politics of the late 1970s, because if you look at the metaphors that are used, the culture wars or the language of fracture Mm -hmm. or polarization, Mm -hmm. there's usually an assumption that there's this sort of deep divide between right and left or that the two sides are becoming more polarized. But I think if you look closely at what happened at Three Mile Island, you can see how in some ways what's happening is the opposite, that political categories are being scrambled, that the right is gaining momentum in part by sort of drawing on a lot of the insights from the left and repurposing them. So that's how I see I think that's how I see my argument sort of diverging from some of the um, other interpretations. And I think other scholars are, are coming to similar conclusions and, you know, doing works of intellectual history of this period that are kind of looking at how these um, categories are getting kind of scra- scrambled and mashed up, kind of creating new kind of political mashups is how I would put it. Yeah, it really is the most maybe the most mind blowing part of, of a mind blowing book. Um, but where, where does, okay. uh, where, does uh, where does pro-life politics fit into this story? So, right, as I mentioned before, the local women at Three Mile Island um, do, uh, they, they do, their actions do reflect the influence of the pro-life movement at the level of rhetoric. And by that, I mean that they definitely mobilize pro-life rhetoric, pro-life imagery in their fight, in the post-accident fight to shutter the plant and shut down the plant. So they'll talk about the unborn. They'll talk about precious life growing inside of them that is sort of being jeopardized, placed under threat by this uh, rapacious utility company that wants nuclear power at any cost and is willing to sacrifice young life. Um so that's part of it. But again, it's very, very complicated because there's a lot of evidence from the sources that show that many women who lived in close proximity to the plant um, were considering abortions after mm-hmm. the accident when they thought that radiation levels might have been so high that they jeopardized the fetal health of their children uh, or their unborn children, rather. So this is something that um, we already sort of know anecdotally that even in communities that claim to have large numbers of people who oppose abortion rights or define themselves uh, strongly as pro-life, um, behind closed doors, women are still uh, interested in obtaining abortions or are obtaining abortions when um, necessity demands it or when they decide that that's something that they need to do. So that was something that was extremely interested to me. interesting to me. I, don't, I did not find a lot of overt connections being made. When I looked at the sources, I didn't find a lot of explicit references to the contemporaneous abortion fight, although I I think it was very much in the air in that area, in part because Three Mile Island was located very close to Harrisburg, the mm-hmm. state capital, where you and Pennsylvania itself was becoming such a battleground during this period around um, abortion politics. So I have to assume, um, you know, that it was very much in the air at that time. But I didn't see a lot of um, explicit reference to the abortion fight uh, in the sources, you know, and I thought that there might be testimonies saying, I was opposed to abortion, but now I understand the the necessity of it because it Mm. seems to be the story of what happened at Three Mile Island seems like a very paradigmatic case uh, that illustrates uh, that would seem to endorse the pro-life. I'm sorry, pro-choice principles that, you know, a woman should have control over her reproductive health and her reproductive future. But I did not actually see a lot of that in the sources, which was somewhat surprising. Hmm. Yeah. And then in your third chapter, you stay with these women and, and local activists um, into the 80s um, between the accident and then the attempt to partially reopen Three Mile Island. 
Right. Um, and and like those journalists that first got there, these activists have the same this this challenge that's common to a lot of contemporary environmental activism, which is making injuries that are invisible or not yet visible um, real to policymakers and the public. Right. Um, how do they go about doing that? So they basically um, activists at Three Mile Island in the years after the accident became highly mobilized around the eventual fate of um, Unit One. Uh, Three Mile Island had two units. It was comprised of two units, um, and the the accident had occurred in Unit Two of the plant, and that unit sustained far too much damage to ever reopen. But the fate of Unit One was up for grabs, and so the utility, not surprisingly, was eager to get Unit One back in operation as quickly as possible. While members of the community, um, many members of the community, fought to permanently shut. And so um, these women became very, very activated around um, trying to close the plant. And they, again, as you rightly point out, they had this very serious challenge, which was how do you make the case uh, that this plant poses a danger to public health in the absence of visible evidence? So they basically adopted two tactics. The first tactic that they adopted was to figure out how to undermine uh, the official findings about the accident's effects, which were very reassuring. The, The findings from the state, the Department of health, um, from the governor's office, from um, the EPA, all of these uh, agencies determined that while radiation had been emitted from the plant, um, it had never been enough to pose a serious public health risk. So the first thing these activists did was they developed a critique, basically, of those findings. They said, you know, that the dosimeters had not been placed in all the places they would have needed to be placed to, you know, um, really follow the path of the radioactive plume that had come from the plant. They said that the um, all of the investigators had looked for some radioactive isotopes and not others. So they, they developed a very, uh, one line of argument along those lines saying that they hadn't actually, the state itself had not adequately monitored radiation. But the other thing they started doing, which I think is, is not uncommon is that they became effectively their own researchers and they, they started going out into the community and, uh, and cataloging, what they perceived to be radio- radiological damage. So they um, begin collecting plants and flowers that they think have mutated because of radiation. Um, a lot of these people are coming from farming communities. So they develop long lists of animal injuries and death on local farms that they are convinced um, came from the accident. They insist that birds and other wildlife have simply disappeared from uh, the valley. And finally, of course, they um, begin to catalog what they see as the human toll. So they talk a lot about um, signs of radiation uh, illness that the symptoms of radiation illness that people experienced at the actual time of the accident. So, um, you know, gastrointestinal distress and um, tearing and watering of the eyes and sore throats and all of these symptoms that they attribute to radiation exposure. And then also other things like, um, greater levels of miscarriage and stillbirth, hyperthyroidism among newborns. Um, uh, There's um, an effort to identify a cancer cluster. They make all of these arguments, um, all of which, as far as I know, are refuted by the official story and by the, the state. So there's a kind of clear impasse, a clear, very dramatic difference in interpretation between what local activists slash researchers are saying and what the the state is saying about the health effects of the accident. Yeah. And and you note that uh, PTSD had been added to the DSM-3 a couple years earlier. Um, How do they mobilize the idea of trauma? Right. So this is actually a really interesting piece of the whole story. Um, While there's, as I just indicated, a pretty significant uh, divide when it comes to the physical effects or the the biological effects, there's a wide consensus um, among both, you know, the officials who are investigating the accident and local activists that that the accident has taken a really serious psychological and emotional toll on 
on members of the community that um, there's there are higher incidences of depression, insomnia, tranquilizer and Valium use. There's a whole range of sort of um, psycho signs of psychological distress and discomfort that are attributed to the accident. And there's no real disagreement about that. And uh, in other words, again, um, state officials who are investigating the health effects I'll agree that there is um, uh, that there have been serious psychological consequences in the community. And they do use specifically the language of trauma, which, as you just suggested, is really a, a term that is becoming much more common coming out of the Vietnam War and the Vietnam era because of the uh, diagnosis of uh, PTSD in the DSM-3. Uh, so, um Yes, all of this is contributing to the kind of depiction of the community as a site of psychological distress. And there's even one group um, called PANE, P-A-N-E, that takes that argument to federal court and tries to use um, trauma and fear as grounds to shutter the plant permanently. And they're ultimately defeated. They prevail in federal court and are ultimately their case is dismissed at the Supreme Court. But there's a big debate, a really interesting debate about what role emotions and psychological trauma and psychological suffering should play in um, environmental impact assessment. They're using NEPA as they're trying to use NEPA. Right. Correct. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're trying to use NEPA um, and insist that that the scope of NEPA encompasses psychological health, which I think is extremely interesting. And we're probably not done with that with that battle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Going forward. Right, right. Um, it's in this period where local residents, when you go to back to the politics, where local residents really came to see the federal government as a villain in addition to the utility company in a way they hadn't really in the, in the, in the immediate aftermath. Um, one woman, I think you say, likens this the move to reopen through Rhode Island as, as environmental Watergate. Um, right. So how, how did this schism open up between feds and local residents? Right. Well, so at the time of the accident itself, a lot of the community's anger was directed at Metropolitan Edison, the utility company that operated the plant. As I indicated earlier, they kind of come off as prevaricating and not entirely truthful. There's a theory that they've kind of are engaging in a cover up and not coming clean about the accident. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the the regulatory body that oversees nuclear power um, and is, you know, Operates um, out of Washington, D.C., it too looked somewhat incompetent and unprepared for an accident of this scale. There were terrible communication problems across the board. So no agency came out of the accident looking uh, great. But um, but the NRC actually at the time looked better than Metropolitan Edison. And part of why it did was it dispatched a nuclear engineer, an NRC engineer named Harold Denton, who was sent to Three Mile to Three Mile Island at the time. And he just exuded competence and honesty. He sort of was this unassuming engineer uh, guy, not a politician, not an executive, um, who sort of tried to address what was going on. And, you know, it's this isn't the kind of story where there are really any heroes, but if there was anyone who assumed a kind of quasi-heroic role at Three Mile, Three Mile Island, it was Denton. Um, and so at the in the immediate aftermath of the accident, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission actually came out looking somewhat better uh, than the utility company. That really shifts um, between 1980 and 1985 because the battle over the future of Three Mile Island is ultimately between the community and especially those activists in the community who were trying to shutter the plant and the NRC that ultimately makes the decision about whether to reopen. It's not the utility company that has that power. It's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And this is an important feature of the nuclear power industry in the United States. It's highly centralized. So what I argue in the book is that a lot of the anger that's originally 
uh, directed at Metropolitan Edison is redirected in the first half of the 1980s to the NRC. And I, I suggest in the book that with this, you can see this larger shift away from blaming businesses and corporations to blaming uh, the state, to blaming the government, the sort of growing anger at uh, Washington, D.C. as the sort of abstract distant authority who's exerting this great power, decision-making power uh, into people's lives unfairly. So I, I, this definitely does happen over the course of uh, the 1980s at Three Mile Island. Yeah. And then and, and in your last chapter, it covers the 80s and, and you zoom out to survey national anti-nuclear activism um, in the right. and, and the Cold War, Reagan era Cold War. Um, uh, the most prominent activist movement we know of is the Freeze Movement, um, which worked to get every American to sort of see that because of the Reagan and NATO's arms race with, with the Soviet Union, that every locale, as you write, every locale became its own version of central Pennsylvania. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about the Freeze and maybe give us a sense of both its politics, which I found really interesting, and also what it reveals about kind of the nation's shifting political terrain. Right. So in the, the fourth and final chapter of this book, I scale back out. The first chapter scales out and is looking at sort of the big, uh, the prehistory of nuclear power. And then in the fourth and final chapter, I scale back out and look at freeze activism in uh, the 1980s. Because, you know, I, one scholar has said that in the, in the United States, it seems like around the nuclear question, um, the public can think about nuclear energy or they can think about nuclear war, but they can't somehow keep both in their minds at the same time. And you do sort of see this sort of oscillation back and forth between preoccupation with uh, war and weapons and then a pivoting toward uh, power plants, depending on what's going on. So the 70s are really dominated by this concern about nuclear power. But by the early 1980s, um, a lot of those concerns are getting redirected to the threat of nuclear war. And that has to do with the revival of the Cold War, what's, what historians call the second Cold War of the 1980s, as the Reagan administration, its members are, bec- are really quite um, straightforward and honest about the, their belief that n- not all of them, but a critical mass of them are pretty straightforward about their conviction that a nuclear war can be limited, that it can be winnable, that the United States could win a nuclear war and ultimately prevail and survive as a coherent society. Um, this is a very different vision from uh, the deterrence model, which proceeds from the premise that nuclear weapons are so extraordinarily lethal um, that the lethality effectively precludes either side from ever using them. So with this growing fear of the possibility or prospect of the actual use of nuclear weapons, you have a transnational disarmament movement um, really a global movement. Um, one historian has um, argued this is sort of the, one of the largest peace movements in the history of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the United States, it's focused on uh, the passage of um, freeze resolutions. And the idea behind the freeze was you're not actually calling for disarmament, which is um, kind of sticky and complicated. What you're asking for is that both sides, both the Soviet Union and the United States, kind of freeze uh, the, the arms race in place, just stop the race until, um, you know, they can get together and kind of figure out ways to dial it back. And I think the it's a brilliant uh it's a brilliant kind of political move because it's very straightforward. It's very accessible. It's designed to cut through a lot of military and technological jargon that might otherwise prevent people from, you know, feeling like they knew enough to be able to take a position about this weapon or that weapon. It's just calling on both superpowers to stop. And in the early 1980s, this becomes a very, very powerful movement um, in the United States. I think you have activism, freeze activism happening in something like 37 or 38 states by uh, the 1980s. You have over 2 million Americans who vote for resolutions, freeze resolutions at the ballot box. So this is a very... um, effective mode um, of politics. But it's also, as I argue in the book, a a kind of complicated political 
uh, formation that shares certain features with what had happened at Three Mile Island. Um, it's very bipartisan. It's designed deliberately to reach out to Republicans and Democrats. Um, it's it, it the freeze activism. Freeze activists very deliberately avoid any larger discussions about U.S. militarism, U.S. weaponry, uh, U.S. waging of conventional war. Um, it simply focuses on. Um, the freeze. And I think part of it is strategic. They freeze activists really wanted to get as many people on board with their vision as quickly as they possibly uh, could. But at the same time, um, you know, again, I think you can see this sort of um, the ways in which older political categories are sort of getting muddied. I mean, for example, the freeze, a lot of freeze activists are coming out of the anti-war movement um, of the Vietnam era, but um, they're not, they are sort of instructed not to talk about the legacy of Vietnam War era activism to try to sort of put uh, questions about militarism and pacifism to the side. Um, they're really the freeze activists try very hard to present themselves as American patriots, um, in part because they're trying to counter, um, you know, right wing attack. But so it's this very complicated, I think, uh, political formation in the 1980s. Although it's also extremely, ins- it's very inspiring. I mean, they're very effective, and there's a lot that I admire about the freeze. But I don't take an entirely uncritical view of them. Yeah, they're really obsessed with the, the kind of idea of the good protester, right? They, 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 right. They owe this debt to anti-war and black freedom struggles, but they, you know, we're not like them. <laughs> we're the exactly. Good ones. <laughs> they really try to, yeah, they try to uh, position themselves in a particular way um, by disavowing earlier activist modes, including including movements that they'd been in, you know, that they were very clearly indebted to. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, today, moving up to the contemporary period, um, despite Three Mile Island, despite Chernobyl um, in 1986, despite Fukushima, nuclear power's future looks as bright as it's been in in decades. Um, What do you make of specifically it's embraced by contemporary environmentalists, Um, especially, as you note, those who were opposed nuclear energy and and atomic weapons during the period that you're... Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most interesting sort of contemporary questions that I was thinking about as I was working on uh, the book. As you mentioned, you have this turn to nuclear power among environmental activists, um, including environmental activists who cut their teeth on um, uh, anti-nuclear organizing. Like for many of these people, it was anti-nuclear, the anti-nuclear fight that sort of ushered them into environmental activism. So there's a kind of deep irony there. Um, on the one hand, I kind of at the level of emotion, I can understand <laughs> the impulse, right? So Stuart Brand, famous environmentalist, uh, eco-futurist Stuart Brand has this epigraph in one of his books that says, you know, um, the more you learn about nuclear power, the better you feel about it. And, or the, the more you learn about nuclear power, the less frightened you are, the more you learn about climate change, the more frightened you are. Right. So a lot mm. of these, um, environmental activists are so frightened about the prospect of, uh, runaway climate change, that nuclear energy, the risks of nuclear energy seem manageable by comparison because it is a carbon-free technology. Like nuclear energy suddenly starts looking pretty good compared to this, uh, you know, um, unrelenting reliance on fossil fuels. I think the the problem with, so I, I, at the level of feeling, there's something extremely seductive about that, right? Like that there's a technology mm-hmm. just here that we already can tap into and start developing that's going to solve the problem. I think, you know, um, my critique of that is that I'm extremely wary of um, the idea that it's just a technological fix that's going to solve the climate crisis. I mean, I think that it's a much larger political crisis that is not going to be resolved through technological fixes alone, that you're going to have, it's a political problem and it's going to have to be addressed politically. And of course, I mean, the other part of it is that, um, you know, it, it's presuming that we can kind of keep a high energy consumption society going if we just come up with the right technology. So it's sort of dodging the other question of, you know, well, maybe we all need to live differently, (laughs) you know, so maybe we need to change the way we live. Um, not just sort of come up with the, um, 
the right technological fix. And there are still, you know, so many unresolved questions about radiological safety um, and that are still mm-hmm. very much open. We can see from what happened at Fukushima Daiichi that there's that these accidents are going to happen, that they're very, very dangerous. So, um, yeah, I think it's deeply, I mean, I think we're living through a sort of strange, ironic moment in the history of environmentalism where you have these pro-nuclear power environmentalists and they they will t- give testimony about how they converted to a pro-nuclear position. So it's it's extremely interesting. Yeah, it really makes you feel like well, <laughs> like Stuart Brand shouldn't just read about the, the you know the promises of the future of technology, but also about the history of the power. Right? right? Just read books like this to figure out where we've been before. Um, right, well, right. Well, I wish I could let you go without asking a question about the 2016 election. <laughs> I mean, it seems like <laughs> it seems like anyone whose work happens to touch down in these certain parts of the country has to have some sort of grand explanation for the ascendancy of Donald Trump. But it, I got to say, I mean, it's impossible to read this book without thinking about it. Um, partly that's because yeah. of Pennsylvania, you know, the, the state that that tipped the election. In, and most um, you know analysis, but I, and I looked up some of the uh, I, the 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 turnout itself is cited in a county that went for Clinton by three points, but all but the mm-hmm. seven the mm-hmm. seven surrounding counties all voted for Trump by wide margins, fifteen point right. fifty points, right. and so this is this is what the media calls Trump country. Um, but right. but it wasn't it wasn't even just Pennsylvania that got me thinking about it. I was thinking, for instance, about um, Trump's campaign book. Uh, it was called crippled America. And that always struck me as kind of an odd title. Um, it's sort of, you don't hear the word crippled very much in political discourse and uh, it's quite, right. quite dour and negative. Um, but now after reading your book, it sounds like it was lifted just kind of piecemeal right out of or a whole cloth out of, out of the period you're narrating. Um, so open question right. about where you want to go with Trump here, but what was it like complete, completing this book when, when all that was happening? Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I found Trump to be extremely, well, obviously very upsetting, (laughs) but, um, but I found the whole Trump thing, uh, to kind of confirm a lot of what I had written about in this book. I mean, I wasn't happy to, Mm -hmm. uh, have my suspicions and hunches, uh, confirmed, but, you know, a lot of this book is making the argument that the emotions driving the rise of the right in the United States are the the, the single most powerful emotion is betrayal, Mm -hmm. a sense of betrayal, um, that a lot of conservative activists really experience at the level of the body, um, at the level of bodily illness and suffering. And I talk about this in terms of of radiation activism and the activists at Three Mile Island, that these are people who are being drawn into politics um, based on really profound sense of injury and that it actually, I mean, and that bodily suffering and somatic injury are, you know, really shaping this politics in profound ways. And I think Trump's whole um, worldview uh, and his his sort of everything for him is, is rooted in the sense of woundedness mm-hmm. and a sense of injury um, really are evocative of a lot of what I'm trying to talk about in this book. And, you know, in the book, I, I, I introduced this concept of biotic nationalism, yeah. which is this form of nationalism in the 1970s that takes hold that really imagines both sites suffering bodies of patriots as evidence of betrayal, but also kind of imagines the nation itself as a, as a living body that has a life cycle. And when Trump says, you know, make America great again, um, that's a temporal Mm -hmm. argument. The, the adverb is again, you know, he's making an argument about change over time about the life cycle of the nation. And I do think that to understand Trump's victory and the allure of, his kind of politics, um, you you have to go back to this moment um, in the 1970s where you do have uh, this profound sense of betrayal and this sense of loss in, you know, precisely in places like central Pennsylvania, which are notoriously red in electoral contests, right? Pennsylvania has the famous famous, famous for its tea, uh, Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, um, in the East and the West vote blue and the regions around them vote blue. And then, uh, almost everything. Exactly. what do they call it? Oh, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Endless puns, yeah. so, um, exactly. So that, yeah, it, it was, it was very, ti- I mean, it, it was very timely and, and watching Trump, um, uh, his rise and his uh, 
unpredictable political ascent and his storming of the White House, um, you know, it confirmed a lot of my thoughts about these dimensions of U.S. nationalism that we don't always take as seriously as yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I hope I mean, it's, a, it's a really fascinating book and I hope your months ahead are, are, are busy with promoting and collecting accolades for it. Um, but when the, uh, when the ticker so. tape all clears up, um, what, uh, what projects will be turning to next? So as I just mentioned, um, I developed this idea in the book of biotic nationalism, this nationalism on the right uh, that took hold, I argue, um, in the 1970s. And I'd like to kind of develop that idea more. I'm interested in a kind of this ongoing question that I've been engaged with for my entire career about the nature of U.S. nationalism um, during the 1970s, but also since the 1970s. And I want to do a project that looks at the, the rise of biotic nationalism sort of separate from the T, TMI t- case study that looks at it in relationship to what I call um, elsewhere diversity nationalism, sort of looking at, which I, a term I use to look at the ways in which, you know, in the wake of the feminist and civil rights revolutions of the 1960s and 1970s, sort of a longstanding civic nationalism is getting reconfigured and kind of adapted in light of the growing disability of women and people of color in the public sphere. So I'm interested in looking at recent U.S. history through the lenses of these two national strains, diversity nationalism and biotic nationalism. Um, I'm also uh, doing... Um, an essay right now on um, debates about social reproduction and caregiving. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of commentators have noted that there's currently a kind of massive crisis in care in late capitalist societies, which we see in terms of childcare and elder care and healthcare and all of these ways. And I'm sort of interested in looking at how those debates about contemporary debates about care Um, how they might be brought to bear on the history of feminism in the 1970s. So in some ways, I'm going back um, to working on the history of gender and feminism. But I still remain really excited um, also about future work in environmental humanities, because even though I still primarily identify as a cultural historian and a gender historian, um, delving into environmental humanities has been really exciting. And I've found so much support among um, scholars and environmental studies, especially a younger generation who seems so receptive to my ideas and, and to my work. So that's been totally thrilling. And I'm excited about pursuing future projects in environmental humanities as well. Well, that all sounds great. We'll really look for those new projects as they emerge. Um, and uh, so thank you for the book. And thank you for your time today talking about it. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. 